0: So us open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 11 and 12. Uh, they're both, especially 12 is rather lengthy, so it has 50 verses in it. Um, but let's go back and continue our study through God's Word. As we look into chapter 11, looking back at chapter 10, the first verse we read here in verse 11 it says, It came to pass when Jesus finished commanding his disciples that now he departs from there to teach and to preach in the cities. So if you look at verse 1 of chapter 11, when you go back to chapter 10, the first four verses, we see the names of the disciples, and they're changed from disciples to apostles in uh, verse 2. And um, I got an email from somebody that wanted to know, Um, because there are those out there today professing to be apostles. And the email was simple, and the question was, how do we know uh, that there were only 12 apostles? And um, I had Mary email back what I quoted on Sunday, a couple Sundays ago, the criteria that was necessary to be an apostle and why there's only 12. And in Revelation 21, verse 14, when it talks about the different layers of the New Jerusalem, Each one of them are named after the 12 apostles. There's only 12. And Paul would have been uh, the 12th replacing Judas. Uh, He gifted them, and then with the same powers that he had, um, and then he sends them out. And basically chapter 10 is uh, the disciples, now called apostles, being sent out, being able to... Um, do exactly what Jesus was able to do. If you look at verse 7 and 8, it says, Heal the sick, cleanse the leper, raise the dead, cast out demons. Freely you have received, now freely give. And so he is now sending them out with his authority. Much of the chapter is a reality check uh, that as disciples... Uh, verse 22, you will be hated, not loved. Um, I think that was brought out several times during our, our conference, that true Bible-believing Christians in the days that we live will be more and more of a minority than a majority. That should not surprise us because that's exactly what the Bible teaches. Second Thessalonians 2 talks about the falling away or the apostasy. And um, we see that happening. Uh, But he says in verse 26, don't fear them. Um, But he goes on to explain that they're going to be persecuted. And he says to them, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. And realize that in your own household, if you look down on verse 34, the whole idea, don't think that I've come to bring peace. I haven't. I've come to bring a sword. And then he explains that, In one's own house, there will be those who will be um, for the Lord, and then there will be those who will be against the Lord. And he says, uh, um, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, a man's foes will be those of his own household. And certainly that was true with the Lord, as we're going to talk a little bit about uh, that this evening. So as we look at this very first verse... Having sent out his disciples, now the Lord Himself is going out, and he'll be preaching the Word of God. When when we get to um when we get to Israel November and we get to Mount Arbel, I like to stand up there and I've done this before. And uh, Arbel is right over the ancient city of Magdal. And if you stand there and hold your hand just like this, you can have Magdal being right about here, and then we're going to read about Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum and uh, the Mount of Beatitudes. Sixty percent of the Lord's ministry occurred in this area. And this is going to be one of the major points of our study tonight because we're going to find out even though he did these unbelievable works, they're going to be held to a higher degree of accountability because of the things that they, they saw especially Capernaum. The headquarters for Jesus' ministry was Capernaum, and that's where he would return to. So as we look at verse 2 through 15, he's going to talk a little bit about John the Baptist. So let's pick it up in 2. And he says that when John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent out two of his disciples. Uh, If you go back to chapter 9, we see the sight is restored in verses 27 through 31. We see speech is restored in verse 32 and 33. He raises a little girl from the dead in chapter 9. This is what John was hearing, and yet he's troubled. He's in prison, and he's going to be executed by Herod. But he sends his disciples in verse 3, he says, Are you the coming one, or should we look for another? Of any person on planet Earth, John the Baptist should be the very last one to make such a statement, or have doubts and have questions. Why? His whole ministry, his whole reason for being, John was the greatest man who ever lived, according to Jesus. And yet, he never did a miracle. He had one job, and that was when the Holy Spirit came down upon Jesus when he was being baptized. He says, this is the Lamb of God who is going to take away the sins of the world. That was his ministry. And yet we find here when the disciples, John the Baptist's disciples, come to Jesus, Jesus said to them, I want you to go tell John the things that you hear and see. He says, the blind receive their sight. The lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the death hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. This is actually fulfilling um, part of Isaiah 61, and we see many of these miracles in Matthew chapter 9. The little girl raised from the dead, a man's sight restored, a person's speech is restored, and... Then he says in verse 6, something I think only Jesus and John knew. Whenever we read the gospel of John, the Lord is always telling something to the person that he's ministering to, something that nobody else knows. Case in point, the woman at the well. Go call your husband and I'll tell you about my living water. Well, I don't have a husband. Right on, you don't. But you've had five of them, and the guy you're living with right now you're not married to, so I guess you're telling the truth. Nobody knew that. And uh, she says, sir, I think you must be a prophet, because nobody knows that. Well, my point is that Jesus knew what the real issue was with John. Why would John, of all people, doubt and why would Jesus say, and blessed is he who is not offended because of me? John the Baptist? Offended by Jesus? We're going to read this twice tonight, but just turn to chapter, same chapter, and let's read verses 18 and 19, and I'll tell you what I think is going on here. When John came, he wore camel hair, ate locusts and wild honey. He was a rugged guy. He had the vow of a Nazarite. Taking the vow of a Nazarite means that he would have had long hair. Uh, he could not even eat raisins or grapes, much less wine. That was, as a Nazarite, uh, strictly forbidden. And so we read in verse 18, talking about John, that he came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. Um, that was John the Baptist. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, look, he's a gluttonous man and a winebibber. He's a friend of tax collectors and sinners, but wisdom is justified by her children. Jesus is the son of God, and yet I'm hearing all these stories about him hanging out with tax collectors, and uh, it offended John. Uh, how do I know? Because verse 6 says he's offended about something. And blessed is he, John, who's not offended in me, implying what? That he was. Who knew? <laughs> John didn't tell his disciples, says, look, I'm having a lot of doubts here, and I'm personally offended by his lifestyle. You go make sure he's the right one. And um, that was a, what I call a dart to the heart. He said, okay. I've done everything that the scriptures talk about in Isaiah 61 with the signs and wonders that only I can do as Messiah. But then he tells them something that only God would know, matter of the heart. Here's the real issue, John. You're offended because of the people that I associate with. All right, time for the, um, I can't repeat this one enough. Uh, for young Christians and for older Christians, Where do we draw the line when we are, as a young believer, when the Bible says, come out from among them and be separate? I tell baby Christians, as a baby Christian, you need to get some meat on your bones and cut your old relationships off. And then I say, for now. Because you're a baby Christian, and the Bible says that as soon as that seed is sown in a person's heart, then comes the devil and tries to take the seed out. Well, how does the devil do that? Well, what did we read? I've come to set a father against a mother, a husband against a wife. I've had um, people in my office that are born again, and they come in and say, I've been given an ultimatum. If you become one of those holy roller Jesus freaks, I'm out of here. It's that simple. I know people that will not count that cost. And for the fear of losing friends, um, they don't continue on with the Lord, or maybe a closet Christian, but certainly not vocal. So what's the litmus test? Well, we're also told that we're the light of the world. Hawking's not here, but it's a good place for an amen, right? And a salt of the earth. I mean, weren't we commanded to go into all the world and preach the gospel? You know when Jesus said that? Three years. After the disciples were with Jesus day and night for three years. What were the disciples like when they were first called? They were rough under the edges. James and John were called sons of thunder. You know what that means? They had a quick temper. That's what that means. (laughs) Peter was always sticking his foot in his mouth, as the guys were saying during, during the conference. But after three years, then they would be sent out. Before we had a Bible college... Um, Pastor Chuck had, before he would send anybody out, you had to be sitting under his teaching for three years. And then and only then would he send a person out. In the meantime, what should you do? As a newborn babe, it says, desire the sincere milk of the word of God so that you can grow. So here's the litmus test. if you're str- Once you've got some spiritual meat on your bones, now... The question is, who's influencing you? I know, I know Christians that that um, are can be an influence and choose not to be, and they're mature believers. Uh, one of the guys quoted at the uh, during the conference that seventy percent of most Christians have never shared their faith with another person. Um, that's a pretty broad spectrum, and when we're referring to the church. So the litmus test is when we're in the world, uh, we should be there if we can be salt and light. But if if we're not strong enough, then the Bible says come out from among them and be separate. Now you can mess that scripture up. The Amish have. They have taken that scripture and um, it's worldly to have electricity, it's worldly to have a car, it's worldly to have <laughs> a telephone. And that's coming out from among them. Well, that's a misuse of that scripture. That's not what that means. And if I don't keep going here, we're going to be in this one scripture all night long. But um, here, John was offended and the Lord got to the heart of the issue of why he was uh, defend, um, offended. Now in verse 7, as they departed, Jesus began to say to the multitudes concerning John, What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? Um, in other words, a man with no backbone? But what did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who wear soft clothes are in king's houses. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, and I say more than a prophet. For this is he of whom it is written. I'm going to, every time we read this, I'm going to point out that as we go through the scriptures, you have to teach all of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. And here's why. Now he's going to quote the end, the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi. Malachi. Chapter three, verse one: Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. And I want you to turn there. I like to hear pages turn. It's the last uh, book of the Old Testament, and let's connect the dots. John the Baptist is a fulfillment. This goes back four hundred years. Malachi is the last writer of, of the of the prophets. And in Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, Behold, I said my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And um, this is a fulfillment now of John the Baptist when he has his ministry. Okay, you can turn back to Matthew 11. And then he says, Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist, And he is the last of the Old Testament prophets. And he then the Lord says, even though he's the greatest man who ever lived, but he says, But he who is the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Just flip over to John um three real quick. And I'll show you what I'm talking about. John three John 3, of course, I always say this, is a three. there's three musts in John 3. You must be born again in verse 3. He said that to Nicodemus. In verse um, um, 14, he says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That's the second must in John 3. And now the third one, is in, uh, let me find it real quick, in verse 30. But I want to go back up to um, verse 29, first of all. And he says, he who has the bride is the bridegroom. All right, you're the bride, I'm the bride, and I have the bridegroom who is, um, spiritually speaking, uh, we're the bride of Christ, But John says of himself here, of the bridegroom who stands and hears, um, rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is full. Uh, He's the friend of the bridegroom, but he's not the bride. What's he saying? That God dealing with um, the prophets and their role and their position When Jesus says that he who is least in the kingdom, he's talking about any born-again Christian, um, when we're in eternity, when we're in the kingdom, our place of authority and importance is going to be greater than the greatest man who ever lives. Who says so? The Lord himself, back in Matthew 11. Uh, And then he says in verse 30, he must increase but I must decrease. So those are the three musts in John 3. And John is not on the same level. Let's go back to Matthew 11. And we read here again in verse 11, Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there is not risen one greater than John, but he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Why? Because John's just a friend of the bridegroom, and you're the bride." Himself, yourself. And from the days of John the Baptist until now the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. What is that telling us? There's going to be a change. No more prophets as in the Old Testament type prophets. The gift of prophecy is still Mentioned in First Corinthians 12. And then he says, if you're willing to receive it, he is Elijah who is to come. Future tense. Well, wait a second. Elijah, that's the last two verses of the Old Testament in Malachi, if you're still in Malachi. The last two verses of Malachi chapter 4 says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet. Now, Elijah the prophet's already been taken up into heaven Uh, a long time earlier. But the way the Old Testament ends is with a prophecy about Elijah. I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. This is a reference to the two witnesses who will show up, I believe, immediately after the church. Uh, Revelation 11 tells us exactly the length of his ministry, 1,260 days. And then um, we find that the uh, beast will have them killed. Their bodies lie in a street of Jerusalem for three and a half days. And after three and a half days, they're resurrected and bodily taken into heaven. And we're the only generation that could have ever witnessed that happen. A hundred years ago, you couldn't, what I just said, you couldn't say. Because it says the whole world is going to watch them be taken into heaven. Well, how in the world can the whole world see an event take place in Jerusalem at the same time? It's easy. We we call it Fox News or CNN. We watch it all the time. I watched them talk about a plane that just crashed after takeoff in a different state on its way to be was on its final leg, a C-130 cargo plane, and um, they were going to put it in a boneyard out in Arizona because that's where they park them. And it was just it was just too old. But I, we watched it, you know, that happened today. So for us here, with the technology we have, we don't stagger at that. We watch things happening all over the world all the time. We watch it live. And um, so when it tells us here that Elijah is going to come before the tribulation, that's exactly what it says. And then it says that he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. Well, that's exactly what John the Baptist said of himself. That was his ministry, to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children. So when we read, now let's go back to Matthew. When we read in Matthew's account... Of this in uh, chapter 11, verse 14, he says, If you're willing to receive it, he is Elijah. Who is Elijah? John the Baptist is Elijah. In what sense? Later, we're going to read the same spirit, the anointing that was upon Elijah is going to be the same spirit that rests upon John the Baptist. And then he says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Um, so in these verses where he gets sidetracked and he talks about John the Baptist. Now in verses 16 through 19, we have um, um, Jesus being rejected by his own people in the, in the very cities that he ministered in. Let's pick it up in verse 16. But, to what shall I like in this generation it 's like children sitting in the marketplace calling to their companions and um, basically not listening you ever You ever try to keep the attention of kids playing? They switch gears pretty quick don 't they, and they get bored and tired and, and they want to do something else and they're they're um, playing with uh, they 're just not paying attention and basically. The Lord is saying, we played the flute for you, but you didn't dance. We mourned for you, but you did not lament. For John came neither, this is now, uh, he's saying you wouldn't hear it from a holy man who lived what the world would consider um, a godly lifestyle. Uh, John came neither eating nor drinking, and he say he has a demon. And this is contrasted now with the Lord actually hanging out with Sinners. And the Son of Man came eating and drinking and saying, look, he's a gluttonous man and a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, but wisdom is justified by her children. Let me just again reiterate with the story of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a tax collector, a little short guy. Had to climb and put a tree to see Jesus. And um, the Lord stops and says, come on down, Zacchaeus, I'm in heaven, separate your house tonight. Now, do you think that The Lord is concerned that Zacchaeus, being a tax collector, is going to corrupt Jesus somehow. You think there's any chance of that happening? No chance of that happening. The Lord is inviting himself into supper for one reason. He knows what's going to happen before it happens. He knows that because of this meal, this guy's going to get saved. And everybody is murmuring and talking and saying, well, yeah, he's, he's, uh, he's in with that tax collector. They hated tax collectors because the way they made their money was seeing if they could get more. They had to give to Rome what was Rome, but if you were a tax collector, whatever you could skim was your pay. Therefore, that's why they were hated. Now, Jesus is hanging with them. But again, he is the one who's going to be doing the influencing. When the meal is over and Jesus comes out, he goes, what are you guys complaining about? This man who was lost, he was Jewish. And he says he came out and Zacchaeus says, look, if I ripped anybody off, implying that he had, he says, I'm going to give you four times back. Now the law says if you rip somebody off, you have to pay them double. Zacchaeus said, I'm going to double that and make it four. And the Lord says, you guys should be happy because salvation has come to this house this night. But again, I want to make the point, make sure that you're the one who's doing the influencing. Are you hanging with people to win them to the Lord? Or are you hanging with people in the world because you like the world? I know people who are in the world and they're not there to be a light. They're there because they like the world. Good place for an amen? (laughs) All right, let's continue. Um, He's bemoaning the fact that he's rejected by his own people. They don't like John. He's got a demon. They don't like me because I hang out with tax collectors is the idea. Now, in verses 20 to 24, um, we have the Lord reproving this northern part of the Sea of Galilee, verse 20. Then he began to upbraid the cities in which most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. Now these two places, we still know where the archaeological ruins are today. A little bit um, east of Capernaum and a little bit north. Is Chorazin and Bethsaida. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sodom, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say unto you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to hell. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. Sodom and Gomorrah are going to be better off than Capernaum in the day of judgment. Yeah, this was Jesus' base. This is where he touched Peter's mother-in-law who was sick and, and she was healed. This is a synagogue that Jesus would minister in in Capernaum. But I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. All right, so here we have a principle. The principle is this. To whom much is given, much is required. And um, the Lord is rebuking Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum because the Lord healed all these people in these areas, and yet... Overall, the people didn't repent and didn't come and, you know, be associated with the Lord. The last verses 25 through 30 is is meant for you and me, and it's really um, what the Lord is looking for and what he's desiring. Verse 25, at that time Jesus answered and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, Because you've hidden these things from the wise and the prudent. What does it say about wisdom? It puffs up. He who has a lot of knowledge can have a big head and uh, be full of pride. He's hidden it from the wise and prudent, but has revealed them to his babes. Keep your finger there and just turn in your Bible to chapter 18. Verse 1 At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus called the little child to him and and sat him in the midst of them and said, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as this little child, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. And whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. Now let's contrast that back with what we just read in verse uh, 25 of Matthew 11. Father, thank you That's the spiritual truth of knowing me that the wise and the prudent aren't going to get it and they're not going to come to me because you have to be humble like a little child And have faith as a little child. When the wise and the prudent think they got it all figured out. Many people have been duped. The hottest I think one of the hottest places in hell is going to be college professors. Who undermine the faith of kids who are brought up in a Christian home. And then they get their first taste of the world when they go to college. And the professors knowingly want to know who the the Christians are and seek to undermine their faith. I've had it spoken to me more than once where a professor would say, raise your hand if you're a Christian. And some brave souls will raise their hand and then he points their finger at him and says, well, you won't be by the time I'm done with you. And the same scripture always comes to mind when when I hear a story like that where the Lord says, anyone that causes one of my little ones, and you can be 50 years old and still be a little one, and anyone who causes one of my little ones to stumble, what does that mean? Well they have a childlike faith. And they take they took that childlike faith and because of their human intellect say, Well, don't you know that the, the earth is billions and billions and billions and billions of years old? And to think otherwise would be foolish. We can prove it scientifically. And I I remember myself coming home telling mom, well, i don 't i, I don 't believe the Bible anymore because uh, my science teacher explained to me um, about how the universe was created and and uh, it took millions and billions of years to do it and then my science teacher got saved and he quit his job <laughs> true story, and he had to do a lot of repenting I think on the way. Jesus said it would be better for a millstone to be hung around a a person who takes away a childlike faith because of his intellect and drowned in the deepest sea rather than to stand before me on judgment day. Oh, you were the one who caused this child to backslide, to leave his first love because of your wisdom and intellect? Let's read it again. It'll make more sense. Father, I thank you that you've hidden these things. What things? Spiritual truth. The faith of a little child where you might not understand everything you read in the scriptures. I'm going to get to some scriptures tonight where I'll confess to you, I don't know. But that doesn't mean I don't believe that. I believe that this book is an errant from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, period. Good place for an amen. And, um, and the Lord says in verse... 26, even so, Father, so it seemed good in your sight. All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and he to whom the the Son wills to reveal him. And then the invitation. What a beautiful verse. Come to me, all you who are who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. You know, one of the most freeing scriptures in the Bible, I quote to myself quite often, take no thought for tomorrow. That's not, a, that's not a suggestion, okay? Take no thought for tomorrow. Sufficient for the day is the evil thereof. Well, what does that mean? That means you got enough on your plate today that don't worry about yesterday. What did Paul say? Forgetting those things that are behind. So I got to let like go do with the past, that's all been covered because Jesus died for it, if it's in the sin category. And if our home is in heaven, Colossians 3, 1, it says we're to seek those things which are above, where Christ is. But the Lord says, take no thought for tomorrow because you got enough to worry about today. What if he actually practically did that? You know what, you know what that does? Set you free. Because you only have to worry about what's going on today. Anybody here worried about what's going to happen tomorrow? You're in a contradiction with God's word. Take no thought for tomorrow. Sufficient for the day. In other words, you've got enough on your plate today to not to worry about tomorrow. Well, that's great news. And it's not a suggestion. <laughs> so I hope that sets somebody free tonight. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. We are told to put on the mind of Christ. Well, how does Jesus think? Well, he's gentle, he's lowly, he's humble. And if you allow the Prince of Peace to come into you, then you will experience what the Bible calls a peace that passes human understanding. Thou will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee because he trusts in thee. The secret to peace? Keep your mind on Jesus. What does the song say? And the things of this world will go strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. And so it's staying focused. I see Peter walking on the water. You can't walk on water, Peter. Peter could, because the Lord told him to come on out. Then he took his eyes off the Lord. Nose dive. The Lord grabs him and picks up and says, Why'd you doubt, Pete? (laughs) You were doing so good. And then he saw the storm and we do good with the lord until what we see the storm help lord I'm going down for sure this time and he picks us back up and he who started the good work in you he's able to finish it he's able to complete it for my yoke is easy and my burden is light oh the ministry so hard and so difficult yeah if it's built upon programs and um, activity center, other than what we talked about in the conference, Bible study, prayer, and walking in the Spirit. Very doable. Doable. And you can rest in that. But when you start putting in the programs, people start burning out because it's not Spirit-led, it's purpose-driven. And um, But the, the Lord says, if, if you're having a hard time, and you think it's really, really tough, in the ministry, well, I think it can be. Uh, but when you always realize, look, this is the Lord's church, uh, and he's the Lord over the church, so his yoke is easy and burn light. Chapter 11, end of that. So we get into chapter 12. <laughs> Again, let me call to your attention... Um, to the movement of the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, If you miss it, you see the message that is here. Matthew is not trying to give a biography of the life of Jesus, nor is he recording these in a chronological order. He presents Jesus as a king. He was born a king and gave what we call the Sermon on the Mount. We did that 7 through through, uh, 9. Uh, which was the ethics of the kingdom, the manifesto of, of the king. He demonstrated that he had uh, the ability to do and perform miracles. He performed them, but then chapter 10, he sends out his um, apostles, now disciples. He sends them out. Um, and now, as we get into these chapters here, There's going to be a conflict that's going to break out between Jesus and the religious hierarchy of his days. Primarily the Pharisees, who are greatly offended by his success. The people that were enamored by him. And it's really going to revolve around the issue, as we get into this here, of the Sabbath day. And keeping the Sabbath. All right. Um... Let's pick it up in verses 1 through 8. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. And his disciples got hungry and they began to pluck the heads of grain to eat them. You ever walk through a a wheat field? You can take them out, sort of rub them in your hands, stick them in there. And that's what the disciples were doing. And the Pharisees saw it and they said, look, your disciples are doing it's not lawful to do that on the Sabbath day. And then the Lord said to them, Have you not read, and now he's quoting the Old Testament, what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him. Now, he would have been running from Saul. And he went to a holy city called Nob, where it was a city of priests. And he entered the house of God, and he ate the showbread which was not lawful for him to eat, nor those who were with him, but it was only for the priests. Now when you go back and read that, I, read, I went back and read all of it today. Um, David says, we're hungry. And he says, well, we, we don't have com- any common bread here, just the bread that they make for the priests. And um, it's not supposed to be given to anybody but the priest." But the high priest there gave it to David and his men. And Jesus is quoting it here. And his point is, human necessity trumps even the Sabbath. Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath, the priest in the temple profane the Sabbath, but yet they're blameless? But I say to you that in this place, there's one greater than the temple. But if you had known what it means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. You would not have condemned the guiltless, for this, for the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. So he's trumping it and changing it right here, and um, this gives me an opportunity to do a little side track here. This is a, it's called the Hebrew Roots Movement. If you haven't heard about it, you're going to. Um, and I'm going to give a couple paragraphs and explain it, uh, what what it is. It's a movement that's happening today that's saying that born-again Christians need to keep the Sabbath day. Because um, it's, um, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. It's one, of the, it's one of the Ten Commandments. All right, here's basically what they believe, and then I'll comment comment on it. The premise of the Hebrew Roots movement is the belief that the church has veered from the true teachings and Hebrew concepts of the Bible. The movement maintains that Christianity has been indoctrinated with the culture and beliefs of the Greeks and Romans philosophy and that the ultimately biblical Christianity taught in churches today has been corrupted with a pagan imitation of the New Testament gospel. They hold to the teaching that Christ's death at a cross did not end the Mosaic Covenant. They teach that the understanding of the New Testament can only come from a Hebrew perspective and that the teaching of the Apostle Paul are not understood clearly or taught correctly by Christian pastors today. They reject the existing New Testament text written in Greek. This becomes a subtle attack on the reliability of the text of our Bible. If the Greek text is unreliable and has been corrupted, as is charged by some, the church no longer has a standard of truth. There are many Hebrew root groups, but the common emphasis on recovering the original Jewishness of Christianity, their assumption is that the church has lost its Jewish roots and is unaware that Jesus and his disciples were Jews living in obedience to the Torah. For the most part, those involved advocate the need for every believer to walk a Torah observant life and insist on keeping all the law, not just um, the Sabbath. And um, the answer to that, of course, if you keep... Just one, just say they're Sabbath keepers. And we're going to keep the Sabbath because it's a commandment. The New Testament answer to that is, if you keep one of them, you have to keep all of them. And you have to do it perfectly. Good place for an amen. Jesus said, you think, don't think that I've come to destroy the law. He says, I haven't. I've come to fulfill it. And he's the only one who can. He's the only one who can keep all of the Ten Commandments. And by the way, there were 613 more, and he kept those too. Anybody here want to raise their hand and say they've never stole anything or never had a lustful thought or ever told a lie? These are all the commandments. Everybody want to go guilty as charged? <laughs> guilty as charged. So to, it, it, the irony of this is they don't know their Bibles well at all. Eh. Let's go there anyway. It's not my notes, but I'll go there. Go to Acts chapter 15. After the Gentiles started getting saved, they didn't know what to do with them because the Jews, the Jews that were, were saved um, were still getting um, circumcised and keeping the law. But there was a big debate about what, Some were coming and telling that Gentiles needed to be circumcised and they needed to keep the law. So the first big powwow that ever took place is at Acts chapter 15. And for those who think that Peter was the head of the church and the first pope, no, he's wrong. Jesus' brother James was the elder in the church in Jerusalem. So um, let's pick it up in verse 13 of chapter 15. Uh, Paul is testifying that how God worked among the Gentiles. And after they had become silent, James, not Peter, James, said, Men and brethren, listen to me. Peter, Simon, has declared how God at first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And with these words of the prophets, as it is written, After this I will return, and will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down, I will rebuild its ruins and I will set it up so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. Even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, uh, says the Lord who does all these things. Um, Therefore, I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God. But let's write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, and from things strangled from bread, uh, bread, from blood. Okay, it's common sense. When you become a born-again Christian and you were um, living an adulterous lifestyle before you got saved, the first, that's a no-brainer. No No sex outside of marriage. And so that's what he's from. Restraining from sexual immorality. Well, that's, that's like, first thing to go for me was swearing. And I actually used to take Jesus' name in vain. But that was the first thing that went. When, when the Lord came inside of me and I got upset about hitting my hand with an arrow, huh? Gee, I got a J out and that was it because I couldn't go any farther than that. It was wrong and I knew it and I was immediately convicted of it. These are common sense things. But as far as the law goes, now in verses 22 to 29, they write the letters to the Gentiles. You're not under the law. We're not going to try to keep, have you keep the law. The, what I just read here, of the Hebrew Roots Movement, they've never read Acts chapter 15. Clear and simple. Um, we're not going to go to verse 28. It, it seems good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things that you abstain from things from idols, um, knowing that you could offend somebody. Hey, come on over for supper tonight. We're having, we're having um, uh, hamburger, and um, but don't tell them that you bought it from the guy who had offered it as an offering downtown because to, to an idol, that would have fed them. So don't go there. Don't do that. And from sexual immorality, if you keep these, you will do well. Farewell. You're not under the law. All right. A little sidetrack there. Let's go back so we can finish this up. Um, I personally, um, well, let's see. Did we, we get to it? Uh, I think we'll let's off at verse 9. Now when he had departed from there, he went into the synagogue. And this would have been, um, I believe in Capernaum. And behold, there was a man who had a withered hand. And they asked him, saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So it's a trap that they might accuse him. And then he said to him, what man is there among you whose sheep, if he falls into a pit on a Sabbath, will he not hold out his hand and lift him out? And how much more value then is a man than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man who had the withered hand, Stretch it out. And he stretched out his hand. It was restored as whole as the other. They were getting upset. They should have been jumping up and down, screaming, This guy was withered hand, and now he's healed. And they're not saying hallelujah. (laughs) No, it was a trap to accuse Jesus for healing somebody on the Sabbath. He said, you hypocrites. And I remember vividly, I've told this story often. Um, when I first got saved, um, I just thought, well, I, I can't take a job where we work on Sunday. It just, I just had that mentality. And I happened to be working at um, a very... <clears throat> um, fine horse ranch where the cheapest horse on the ranch had an indoor arena was like $8,000. They were all gated horses. And I was basically a stable boy who washed down the horses after their workout. But horses needed to be fed on Sunday too. And I was bummed out because I thought, I've got to quit my job because they want me to work on Sunday and I don't want to work on Sunday. I just went in to feed the horses and then I could come home, but I still had to go to work. And I was living with the assistant pastor of uh, the Assembly of God. And um, I came in and I was all bummed out. And the look, guy looked at me and said, what's wrong with you? And I said, I've got to quit my job. He says, well, why? And I told him. And he says, well, I was just reading this here, this verse, Matthew 11. But in his version, instead of a sheep, it was, which one of you will not feed your horse on the Sabbath. It actually said that in his version, and I went, "Praise the Lord!" <laughs> I got a green light to keep my job. I loved it, loved working with horses, and um, and I said, "Well, there it is. I can." Which one of you? I, that means I could keep my job and s- still work taking care of horses. And the Lord said to him, "Stretch out your hand." And he stretched it out and was restored, as the other was whole. Whenever the Lord walked into a place, he'd scan it. He'd start on this end, and go all the way around. Who's got the greatest need here? And that's where the Lord would go. And they knew it. They knew the Lord would be drawn to that guy, and they even asked the question, what you're about to do, is it lawful for you to do it? Now the results. Verse 14, Then the Pharisees went out and took counsel against him, how they might destroy him. It's here where they want to kill him literally. But when Jesus knew it, he withdrew from there, and a great multitude followed him, and he healed them all. And he warned them not to make it known that it might be fulfilled. Again, another prophecy being fulfilled. Behold my servant, who I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him. And he will declare justice to who? The Gentiles. He will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoking flax he will not quench. This is an important scripture to understand. There's times when it's necessary to exhort, reprove, and rebuke. It tells us later on in the epistles to do it with all long-suffering with people. There's a place for that. But what Jesus is saying here, a bruised reed he will not break. Uh, Dwight's paraphrase here is you don't kick a guy when he's already down. Maybe he did something wrong. and Maybe he's beaten himself up about it. And you could go up to him and play one of Job's comforters. He so said, wonder, you know, look at your lifestyle. And basically, you're being one of Job's friends. Job's down. But the Lord, the nature of our Lord is saying right here that you don't kick a guy when he's already down. A bruised reed he will not break, nor a smoky flax will he quench, till he sends forth justice to victory. And in his name, Gentiles will trust. Then one was brought to him who was demon-possessed, blind and mute. And he healed him so that the blind and the mute man both spoke and saw. And all the multitudes were amazed and, could, and said, Could this be the Son of David? And this is how um, Matthew's Gospel begins. In Matthew chapter 1, it says the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And here it is referred to again in verse 23 of chapter 12. Could not be, this be the Messiah? That's what they're saying, the son of David. But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, this fellow casts out demons, uh, except by Belzebub, the ruler of the demons. And Jesus knew their thoughts, and basically he's going to say, what you guys just said doesn't make any sense at all. He said, every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and every city or house divided against itself won't stand. He's basically saying what you're saying is dumb. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out, therefore they shall be your judges. So the Lord is saying, your argument is crazy. Satan's not going to fight against himself. Then he, and then he said um, to them, I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, and surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or else, how can you enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds a strong man, and then he will plunder his house? And he who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. Again, this is where, as believers, you're going to fall into one or two camps. By your lifestyle, you're going to be gathering people in. They're going to know you're a Christian. And uh, they're going to talk about you behind your back that you are a Christian. That's gathering. Scattering is um, um, actually being a Christian, but by your lifestyle outwardly, they don't see any difference at all. They don't live any differently than anybody else. I could get really sidetracked here, but for sake of time, I want to finish the chapter. Um, The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Therefore I say to you, every man's sin and blasphemy will be forgiven him. But the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven men. Uh, In another place it says, in this life or in the life to come. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, neither in this age or in the age to come. What is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? Simply this, when Peter preached in Acts chapter 2, he had just been filled with the Holy Spirit. The Spirit there in Acts 2, it says it could be seen, close the fire on the head, and heard it came in like a mighty rushing wind. Peter gives his first Bible study, and it says they were cut to the heart when Peter gave his Bible study. 3,000 people get saved. There were more than 3,000 people there that day. Those people who were under the same conviction of the Holy Spirit that Jesus is God, well, some of them believed it and repented and were baptized. But there were more than 3,000 that were there. If they rejected the gospel on that day, they just committed the sin of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, which is what? Well, All sin can be forgiven except one sin. And that's when you hear the gospel and the Holy Spirit is bringing that conviction that you know in your heart that you're a sinner, and you reject that, well, then you can't be saved. Why? Because there's no other name under heaven whereby you must be saved. If you reject Jesus, then you've just committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit and you can't be saved. People say, what is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? That's a real simple explanation of it there. The Lord says, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or else make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For a tree is known by its fruit. And then he, <laughs> and then he calls them, tells it like it is, you brood of vipers. How can you, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. A good man, out of the good treasures of his heart, brings forth good things. And an evil man, out of evil treasures, brings forth evil things. But I say to you, that every idle word men may speak, they will give an account of it in the day of judgment. Revelation 20. The books were open, And it says they were judged according to their works. That's the great white throne Judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. And the Pharisees now at this point, they want a sign. And the sign is, some of the Pharisees came and said, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and an adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign is going to be given to it except for the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. I've heard Christians debate non-believers, atheists. One of the favorite atheist questions is, so you really believe that a man was inside the belly of a fish for three days? You tell me you believe that? And what you tell them back is, no, I don't believe that. Jesus believes that. And he's the one who tells the story, just as Jonah was three days. It says, the men of Nineveh will rise in judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and indeed a greater than Jonah is here. And the queen of the south will rise up, this is of Sheba, in judgment with this generation and condemn it for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and indeed one greater than Solomon is here now, when I told you earlier that there's things that i, I that I don't know and can cannot comment on here's one of them right here. He talks about the spiritual realm, and um, the, the scriptures tell us that. Every Christian who is an heir of salvation has a ministering spirit, an angel that um, uh, is with you. And here on the other side, we have demonic spirits. So now we're going into the demonic realm. When an unclean spirit goes out of a man and goes through dry places seeking rest and finds none. And then he says, I will return to my house, which I came out. And when he comes out, he finds it empty, swept, and put in order. Then he goes out and takes with him seven other spirits, more wicked than himself, and they enter and dwell there. And in the last state of the man is worse than the first. So shall it also be with this wicked generation. He's using an analogy I really can't comment on too much except for what we have in front of us here. Um. I can probably best explain it with a story that Bastia told me when we went to a a voodoo spot down in Haiti. And he explains how they will work themselves into a frenzy and actually invite and provoke a spirit to inhabit one of them. They wait for it all night. They get all rummed up and pepped up, and eventually a person will become possessed. And then they talk about the supernatural feats that this person will do during that time, when I said, give me an example, Bastia. And he says, well, that true right there, that supernaturally climbed it like Spider-Man. But then when the person got to the top, the spirit left him, and the person was all freaked out because he didn't know how he got there. And that's a story that Bastia tells. So I tell it because here is a person who is demon-possessed, and for some reason a spirit leaves, and it talks about walking in dry places, what does that mean? I can tell you, I honestly don't know. But whatever it is, that person cleans up his life. And um, here's what I believe this means. I believe a person could go through rehab, 12-step programs, and they're program-centered, and not biblically centered? Oh well, yeah, you can clean yourself up by going through a 12-step program. As long as you have a higher power. What's your higher power? Well, whatever you want it to be. And they can actually clean up their lives. And so, here comes the demon back and sees everything swept up and clean. Why would it be worse in that state and uh, then seven times worse? Here's why. You can be lost, realizing that you need to go to rehab. You need to clean up your life. And so you do. And now you're a cleaned up sinner. <laughs> you get my point? You see, you're still in your sins. And so now that worst state, that's why Jesus said that the prostitutes and the harlots are going to enter the kingdom of heaven before the scribes and the Pharisees. You know why? Why? because prostitutes know they're sinners. When a self-righteous Pharisee who's got his act all cleaned up doesn't see the necessity to repent and come to Jesus. That's what I believe this parable is here. So, I suggest my own 12-step program. Repent of your sins, invite Jesus Christ into your heart, and be baptized with the Holy Spirit, Then be baptized with water. Step two. Repeat step one 12 times. And there you have it. And just walk in the Spirit and don't fulfill the laws of the flesh. All right, let's finish it up. It not my time. Somebody's thinking, so what else is new? Verse 46, But while he was talking to the multitudes, behold, his mother and brothers stood outside seeking to speak uh, with him. This is uh, for your Roman Catholic friends who believes that... Uh, Mary was a perpetual virgin. Um, Go to Matthew chapter 13, which is just one chapter away. Look at verses 55 and 56. The people aren't believing in him in verse 55. They say, isn't this the carpenter's son, the son of Joseph? And isn't this his mother who's called Mary? And here's his brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. Jesus had four brothers. And sisters. So there's four, five, six, at least seven people in this family. Jesus was the firstborn, but he had four brothers and at least two sisters, if not more. And um, so now let's go back and uh, finish this chapter out. Jesus had brothers and sisters, contrary contrary to Roman Catholic doctrine. Then one said to him, look, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak with you. And Jesus said to one and told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And he stretched out his hand toward his disciples and said, Here are my mothers and my brothers. And whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. In closing, family, you're my family. Whenever Santos comes to visit, says, Hi, family. And you're more family than, than relatives I have. That don 't know the Lord, and so family let's stand and let 's close in prayer. We made it through chapters eleven and twelve tonight, Lord, as we thank you for the life that new life you 've given to us, we thank you for your nature, where you 've invited us to come and learn of you that you 're gentle, you're lowly in heart, and the promise that we 'll finally find rest for our souls. For your yoke is easy and your burden is light. Thank you for your promise, Lord, where you tell us that sufficient for the day is evil thereof. I pray for any that are troubled by their yesterday or about worrying about tomorrow, that you've commanded us not to. And we thank you for the rest that that brings to us. So, Lord, as we continue through your word, we pray you bless our studies in the book of Matthew. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.